HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by PASA Sustainable Agriculture. Register to attend PASA's 31st annual conference by January 28th at pasafarming.org conference. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the good fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome Tartines, Chad Robertson, and Jennifer Latham. In this episode, we'll talk to Chad and Jen about Tartines Bread Revolution their new bread book. And we'll get another double Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. It's not a stretch to say that Julia was obsessed with bread, notably how to translate the wonderful baguettes and boules she ate in France to the American kitchen. With help from many collaborators, Julia toiled away at creating the perfect bake-at-home bread recipes. She researched bread making with bakers in France and loved learning from American bakers featured in her later television shows like Nancy Silverton. Julia viewed bread as such a complex topic that it wasn't even covered in Mastering the Art of French Cooking. She reserved the requisite deep dive for Mastering Volume 2. The instructions for baking what Julia and Simcabec called plain French bread, which can become a boule or a baguette, run some 22 pages. Late in her career, in Julia's kitchen wisdom, she got a universal recipe for bread down to just six pages. Someone else who shares Julia's determination for mastering and teaching bread baking, famously producing a 38-page you-can-do-it-too sourdough country loaf recipe, is the co-founder of San Francisco's famed Tartine Bakery, Chad Robertson. Chad's first cookbook, Tartine Bread, became a manual for home bread bakers determined to recreate the sought-after loaves baked at Tartine. 
In turn, Tartine's dedication to craft helped establish Chad as one of America's leading bread bakers. Chad is also the co-author, with Elizabeth Pruitt, of Tartine, and the author of Tartine Book Number 3. A James Beard Award recipient for Outstanding Pastry Chef, Chad and Tartine's success has been profiled in publications around the world. Tartine now has six locations in Northern and Southern California, as well as in Seoul, South Korea. Jennifer Latham is up until recently Tartine's Director of Bread, having managed the bread-making teams in Northern and Southern California. As Director of Bread, Jennifer collaborated with Chad on innovations and techniques at the bakery. Together, they co-wrote and recorded the audiobook, Getting Started with Sourdough. They join us today to talk about their passion for making great bread and their newest collaboration, Bread Book, Ideas and Innovations from the Future of Grain, Flour, and Fermentation. Welcome to the podcast, Chad and Jen. Hi, thanks for having us. Glad to be here. Well, we're delighted you can join us. We love talking about bread on this podcast. As we know, Julia really would, would have enjoyed, I'm sure, all the technical details we will get into. So, but... While many people are well aware of the tartine phenomenon, I'm sure we have some listeners who maybe never even heard of it. So, Chad, do you think you could kind of set the stage for the uninitiated about particularly tartine's philosophy toward bread making? Sure, sure. Um, it's pretty <clears throat> pretty basic stuff. Um, I was in a culinary institute in New York studying uh, to be a chef, to cook, and uh, this was in the early 90s. And there were, there were a couple of very notable uh, bakers in the U.S., but, but not many. Um, Nancy Silverton, as, as mentioned earlier, on the West Coast. And then uh, my mentor, Richard Bourdon, uh, in the Berkshires in Massachusetts. And then Dan Leader at Bread Alone on the East Coast also. And then up in the Bay Area, Steve Sullivan at Acme. Um, and these guys were all little bit generation, a little before me, and, and they inspired me to want to make bread. They had all kind of made the pilgrimage to France and, and learned from Poilon and other bakers, um, and then brought that knowledge of, of you know, these this sort of invisible uh, sourdough bread making back to the States. Um, so the the original the original idea was to just, you know, continue to make this kind of deeply flavored, you know, long natural fermentation bread more, more available in the U S but again, it was, it was all sort of invisible stuff, kind of like, you know, French food in the fifties when, when Julia started to illuminate all these secrets for, for ever, for all of us. Um, so, you know, my first mentor, Richard Bourdon in the, in the Berkshires, he was, he was all about long fermentation, natural fermentation and lots of whole grain, fresh milling, and, and really just to make uh, the most nutritious, flavorful loaf of bread possible. And, and as you know, like in the United States, that was all kind of late eighties, early nineties, kind of, kind of coming around along with some of the other European traditions of, of, you know, uh, drinking wine with, with your meal, enjoying cheese and, and all those things, bread kind of fit into that, that little grouping of, of, and, and sort of, uh, ways that people started to eat in the United States. And Jen, do you want to weigh in? Because I thought it might be helpful since we're on radio um, to kind of maybe describe what the flavor and texture and taste profile of bread from tartine is that might differ from, like Chad said, what you get in the grocery store, or even what you get 
at an ordinary bakery? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I think tartine bread is really rooted in kind of the simp- the basic building blocks of bread and trying to get all of those building blocks as good as they can be. So then when it all comes together, the whole thing really shines. So those, those building blocks, right, are kind of the technique and the ingredients. So, you know, we try to get a really fresh Levan, so like a really fresh sourdough. So it's only a couple hours old. It hasn't gotten really sour yet, really funky. Um, it's kind of just ripe enough to raise the dough. So you get a lot less acidity than you do in like a classic San Francisco sourdough. So you can still kind of taste the wheat and you get kind of these more creamy floral flavors. It's a more nuanced kind of flavor profile. Um, and then we take our time with the dough. We really let it let it ferment as long as it needs to. And then after it's shaped, we put it away in a cold fermentation overnight. So it goes through this really long, slow, bulk, or sorry, shape fermentation until we bake it the next day. And that gives it more of a chance to develop those kind of subtle flavors and more of a chance to develop this big, open, fluffy crumb, um, you know, and then we've always worked with these really exceptional flowers. Um, we worked at a, a mill called Central Milling for a really long time. And then recently in the last few years, we've partnered up with a couple of mills in the Pacific Northwest, at Karen Springs Mills and Camas Country. Um, and we're getting these really exceptional fresh grains from them, um, these single variety wheats that we are able to like, you know, really have a dialogue going back and forth with the millers about kind of what is working for us and what we're excited about, what they're excited about, which is this sort of constant chance to make it even a little bit better. Um, Chad, does that anything you want to add on there? Um, Just something I thought of that you you reminded me, um, you know, that, that, and I've forgotten it's been so many years, that whole notion of making sourdough, you know, the the kind of central part of, of the fermentation, what we do, um, but without getting that really sour flavor, which some, some parts of the U.S., especially the Bay Area where, where we came from, was sort of known for, you know, extra sour. Um, but that in, in France, and I, and I would, I would say with, with confidence, probably uh, Julia would think the same thing, that was considered a defect in France. The, the sourdough was always meant to, um, you know, provide uh, depth of flavor and digestibility, but it was never, if, if the bread got too sour, that was, con- the, the baker was, you know, someone made a mistake. So um, I do remember at one point when I worked for Richard, it was when Julia was first starting the the baking series on her show and then the books that came alongside. <clears throat> and I remember she was taking, uh, there, there was like an invitation for bakers around, you know, the country is mostly probably East Coast at the time, but to bring bread for her to taste. And I had to drop it off or we, we all had to drop it off in Boston hmm. somewhere. And but I remember people like her assistant saying very clearly, she does not like very, very sour bread. It's not it's not how it's supposed to be. And I just remember I remember that and it all made sense, you know, but. It's it's funny. It's something that I'm not sure how, how that little piece of information about really like what the the sort of profile flavor of sourdough. Um, it, it's it's funny. I'm not sure how well known that is, but yeah, that was kind of where it came from um, in my mind that I didn't want the bread to have this acid flavor that was going to overpower the food that you were eating it with. But as we come to make sourdough for so many years, um, there's a lot more to it than that. Like if you if you 
let the sourdough go past the stage where it's not sweet anymore. It gets really sour and vinegary. It's not going to give you the same leavening effects. And and so, you know, that there really is something to that, uh, you know, a view of too sour bread is pro- probably something could have been done better. Yeah, I was going to ask you guys about that because I noticed in, in the book, which we'll talk about in the second half, that there was kind of a number of mentions about sort of that the the starter, the Levin, is not kept that long. And, and so are you making, or it's shorter fermentation, does that mean actually you're making new starter quite frequently? Because I feel like during the whole sourdough frenzy, it was about, you know, nursing your your starter forever. Yeah. I mean, you don't have to do that. Like if if you're not making bread on a regular basis, you can, you know, you can feed your starter every few days or whatever and keep it in the fridge and it'll, it'll be pretty sour and it's not really optimized at that point, but it's, it's totally fine. It's kind of, we call it like it's hibernating or something. Um, but if you want to get it into sort of, you know, fighting shape or leavening shape where you're going to put it into a dough and, you know, you want the, the big volume and open crumb and not too sour flavor, then you have to sort of feed it a few times, what we call feeding it, which is basically just adding flour and water, mixing it at a certain temperature and a certain hydration. And we, we do, at Tartine, we do that more than, um, definitely more than traditional sourdough feeding schedules and, and more than most bakeries, um, you know, historically, unless they've sort of learned from our techniques. But that, that technique of using the very young starter, meaning a couple of hours old, at the, at the maximum, uh, really just came out of necessity when I was working alone in Point Reyes with a wood-fired oven, and it I sort of needed the final rise in the baskets to be a little longer so I could I could sleep five or six hours as opposed to two hours. So I I just sort of rearranged the the timing of everything so that it would give me a longer final rise and a and not end up too sour, and and that's kind of how we got there. Got it. So. I found this quote of Jen's that I thought also sounded super Julia, and I, I wanted to share that with everyone. Jen said uh, in an interview that the thing about bread that never gets old to me is that you're never done knowing it. You're never done learning it. There's never a point where you can say, okay, well, I've mastered the thing. I got that. I can finish and move on. And I thought that was – you felt like something Julia would have said. And Jen, yeah. I wanted to ask you, because you have such a – had such a specific job up until very recently as director of bread. It's not a standard, you know, LinkedIn title. And uh, so I wanted to ask you how you ended up as director of bread at Tartine and, and what that job entailed. Yeah. So my relationship with Tartine started because I lived right around the corner. Um, I was living just two blocks away and kind of um, spent a lot of time just hanging out there because the food was so good. The people were so fun. It's just kind of everything about it was magical. Um, and at the time I was bartending, I'd moved to San Francisco to try to be a writer actually <laughs> to work as a journalist. And then just kind of ended up getting jobs in the restaurant industry to make rent. I think as so many people do. Um, and Tartine was my like hangout spot kind of during the day, if I need to sit down and get some writing done before my bartending shift and whatnot. So I spent a lot of time there. And at some point I kind of just you know, realized that I wanted to learn how to make that bread. Yeah, I remember just sitting outside the bakery with a fresh loaf I just picked up that just got out of the oven and tearing into it and like just looking at it and saying, I need to, I need to learn how to do this. Um, so I asked for a job and it, 
I started asking for a job. I think it took me about two years to actually get one. Um, and the job I got was at Bar Tartine, which is our restaurant, which isn't there anymore. Um, and I started as a server. So I served there for a little while, almost a year. And then I um, became the pastry assistant for Courtney Burns and, and Nick Bala, who were the chefs at the time, who were just a couple of brilliant people to work for. I learned an incredible amount about you know fermentation and, and technique and cooking and you know, everything from them. Um, so I was Courtney's pastry assistant for a year and then a spot on the bread team finally opened up that I kind of been waiting for. So I moved over onto the bread team um, and baked a bar tart team for a little while. And then we shut down the bread program there and I moved over to the original bakery, Guerrero, worked there for a little while. Um, and then we opened the manufactory about five years ago. Um, at the time I was pregnant with my twins and um, the manager who was kind of the guy I learned under left to move to Scandinavia and go big bread over there. Um, and I got off with the position as a manager. So I got promoted while I was on maternity leave, which is pretty cool. I got to say, um, says a lot about Tartine that that happened and came back. And the first thing that Chad said was, you know, we're going to start working with these new mills. I really want to incorporate these new flowers. So that was sort of my first mandate as manager was to start, you know, building a relationship with Kevin and, and learning how to use these new flowers, which is super cool. And then we started opening up down in LA, which was exciting. And I traveled down there and was helping interview for that position and stuff. And then they said, well, you know, you're down here a lot and you're helping out with this program. So let's just kind of, you know, put you in charge of, of both of them. So I had, you know, I've had a couple of fantastic managers in LA and in SF and, and kind of got to the point where my job was mostly just helping them kind of, I think of, I think of that job a lot as being kind of a yoga teacher where you're just trying to keep everything in alignment. You're just kind of trying to keep the production schedule in alignment with the bread and kind of keep all the teams where they need to be and just kind of zhuzhing everything. <laughs> just, it's a lot like making bread where you're just kind of, you're trying not to like interfere too much with the process and just keep it all kind of in balance and where it's supposed to be. Um, yeah, so that's kind of how I got there. No, that's great. I think I think that kind of career pro pro progressions to a unique role are always really interesting, and I think inspiring to other other people. Um, so you mentioned about the various components and and sort of ins and outs and iterations of Tartine as it's grown. And Chad, I, I wanted to ask you given that there's been some expansion and contraction and changes, and then of course the pandemic, which affected everybody and everything they do, I was just kind of curious now in 2022, what your sort of current aspirations and visions for Tartine as a brand, if you're planning expansion or you're trying to keep it to the Asia Pacific rim, what, 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 what's your vision right now? Yeah. Um, as you as you noted, lots has lots has uh, has changed <laughs> over the last couple of years. Um, thankfully, we've we've weathered, you know, as to the best of our ability, and um, we've had a lot of support from our our teams, our investors, um, our communities, <clears throat> and yeah, everything was. I mean, we opened three or four places in LA during. Well, I guess it's four now during the pandemic. Um, our first LA sort of neighborhood spot was the first week um, 
of 2020, so or COVID in 2020. So, um, you know, yeah, it's hard to say right now. Everything's sort of in a in a, in a new phase, but um, we are continuing to expand. Um, as as everyone knows who who reads these days, um, you know, the labor market like it's just everything's changed. A lot of people are making food. A lot of people are making bread. Um, a lot of people have decided to <clears throat> pursue, you know, making food and in, in the in sort of following their their culinary passions in a in you know a less traditional way than we've all grown up with, which is restaurants, culinary school, bakeries. Um, people are people are kind of rewriting the rules, which I think is an, is a very interesting thing to see. It's a little scary, but it's also um, inspiring in a lot of ways. So we are we, we're. Just opening another small one in in Los Angeles, which is a lot bigger city than San Francisco. So we have uh, three locations right now open in San Francisco, and um, probably uh, want to sort of double back around the the original one we opened in two thousand two. So you know it's getting up there now, and um, the neighborhood has changed probably ten times around us. So we're gonna we're gonna sort of double down on what we have and try to make um, the facilities better, the, the sort of infrastructure and support for our teams. We want to improve all of that and, and just sort of, you know, reassess what the neighborhood needs after 20 years and, and try to, you know, try to land in that spot where we're contributing to the community as much as possible. And then, you know, on a local basis and then, and then nationally or globally, what we sort of started and when Jen came on, you know, we were, we were maybe uh, joining forces with uh, a coffee company that's global now that also was in Japan. And, um, you know, the idea behind that was to, to be able to scale some of the, the food that we make, like the bread and, and other things, croissants and those, those sort of things, to make the higher quality, uh, more nutritious versions of these things that are very popular in the United States and around the world, make them more affordable and more available to more people. So that's a that's something I've been talking about for years and it's uh, I, I didn't really underestimate it, but it is, I think it's harder than um, probably harder than I was imagining to bring a, a very artisanal craft, like making, you know, sourdough handmade bread to try to scale that. There are people that have done it really well, not a ton, but there are some. And, and, you know, as we, as we build bakeries and, and build teams um, in different communities, um, I'm I'm really looking at the same time at this parallel sort of track of trying to find a way to <clears throat> make some of this bread with these same ingredients and, and the same flavor and the same nutrition on a much larger scale so that it could be more affordable because that, that's always the challenge here is trying to make some of these foods, um, you know, available to everyone, to not, not really uh, dependent on you know, being able to spend $10 on a loaf of bread versus, you know, $5 on a loaf of bread. I love that. I love the aspiration behind that. And I feel like Nancy Silverton for a while did that with La Brea Bakery. Although I think then after she sold it, inevitably things kind of change when you've gotten to a certain point of commercial. Then if it's owned by private equity, they're looking to maximize different things. But I think, um, as I think my mantra in 2020, I think it was, is life's too short to eat bad bread. So I think that um, <laughs> being able right. to spread the word on that in, in, in that way, I love it. 
All right, we're going to take a break, and we'll be back to talk about Chad and Jen's latest collaboration, Bread Book. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by PASA Sustainable Agriculture. For 30 years, PASA's conference has served as a springboard for transformative food system change. PASA's 2022 conference features more than 30 virtual and 90 in-person sessions on farming and food systems, covering topics that include building community food webs, keeping seeds to preserve cultural traditions, protecting local watersheds, as well as production methods and business skills for food producers of all levels. Keynote speakers include Soulfire Farms' Leah Penniman, author of Farming While Black, Sarah Mock, author of Farm and Other Efforts, and Jessica Gordon Nemhard, author of Collective Courage, a History of African-American Cooperative Economic Thought and Practice. PASA's virtual pre-conference takes place January 4th through 28th. Register anytime to attend live or get recordings. You can also join PASA in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on February 10th through 12th for its in-person main conference. Comprehensive COVID safety measures will be in place. Learn more and register at pasafarming.org slash conference. That's P-A-S-A farming.org slash conference. Welcome back. We're talking to the sourdough bread experts from Tartine, Chad Robertson and Jennifer Latham, about their newest cookbook collaboration, Breadbook, Ideas and Innovations from the Future of Grain, Flour, and Fermentation. So before we talk about the specifics, I thought I would ask both of you, maybe for those who might have been familiar with Tartine's other books, to kind of describe how this book is is different or similar or what people could expect from it. I'll give it a shot, and I'm sure Jen has uh, lots of good stuff to add. But I feel like this book is definitely keeping in the in the sort of Tartine, you know, style of of putting new ideas out there and and trying to give the most detailed instructions as possible, pro- probably more detailed than ever before because I had Jen writing a lot of this <laughs> and, and being more thorough than I would have been, which is helpful, uh, super helpful. Um, but yeah, it's, it's funny. This book has, um, maybe it's a little, little coloring outside of the lines more than the last couple of books, but I would say it's, it's in that position because of the books that came before it. Like, like, as you mentioned in the, in the intro that, you know, we didn't set out to write a really long bread recipe, but that's kind of what it became known as. And, and I could have, it could have been, you know, 10 times longer than that and probably still lacking information that people ask me every day. We get emails all the time, you know, about stuff. And I'm like, wow, I should have written about that. I should have written about that. There's so many things, but, um, you know, in this book, we apply a lot of the sourdough bread principles to other things like pizza and pasta and, you know, th- these are things that in America, at least people eat a lot of this stuff. Like, you know, sometimes it's more than half of your diet of, of, of kids <laughs> in this country is pizza and pasta. And, say 90% and if you're my five-year-old. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, my, my daughter too, and she was a little bit younger and, and, you know, there's nothing really wrong with that, except that, you know, you can have a, you can have a nutritious version of, of pizza that, you know, has a little more whole grain. If it's fermented a long time, it's going to be more digestible. If you put a lot of, you know, good, vegetable toppings and different things on it, you know, you're getting, you're getting a, a meal out of it versus, 
you know, maybe, maybe more empty calories. So, um, you know, also just, this is kind of like the way we like to eat. We play around with all this stuff and, you know, after we do, but this is like our seventh book that we've done with Tartine or with affiliated Tartine people. And, and, you know, we put things into these books. We don't necessarily put them into practice as much in the, in the locations. And then, you know, if a few years go by, which, which has between bread book and then the last book we did, um, there's a lot of ideas that we've been workshopping, you know, internally, and we haven't really put them into the book. So that was kind of, you know, Jen was here and we were collaborating on all this stuff and it was like, Hey, let's get these ideas into the next book. The first bread book recipe is notorious for being long. And like Chad said, it could, I think be even longer. It kind of touches back to what I, what the quote that you pulled from, um, how I feel about making bread being a never ending process. There's always more to talk about. There's always more to learn. Um, there's always more to play with. So with this recipe, you know, thankfully we've had to think 10 years of feedback now on the first bread book. And like Chad said, we get questions all the time. So I really tried to go in and answer some of those questions that we frequently get. Some of the questions that I had as a reader, because the bread book came out before I was a tartine baker. So I had a little time to play with that before, you know, actually learning from Chad and baking at tartine. So I had some questions too. So I really tried to go in and kind of make it, um, answer some of those questions, make it as clear as I could. But still, you know, I go in this and I look back and I read it. And like Chad said, I'm like, oh, there's, you know, maybe I should have talked about this more. Or, oh, I, I didn't even touch on that. <laughs> so I think there's just always more to come back to. Um, and then, like Chad said, trying to apply some of those techniques, those building blocks I was talking about earlier to other grain-based foods like tortillas and pasta, I think is kind of something exciting and new and something I haven't seen a lot of. And I'm, I'm excited to see what people do with this book. You know, take I hope, my biggest hope is that people take those building blocks and those ideas that we had and kind of run with it. Well, yeah, one of the things that excited about me a, a couple years ago, I actually was at the um, Oxford uh, Symposium for Food and Cookery, um, which is, if neither of you have attended, it, it, it's a quite an academic thing. It's usually people who are culinary historians and researchers, and usually they're historians in some other field. But I sat through a presentation on emmerweed and a presentation on um, another ancient grain, and it was very technical, but it really opened my eyes to how actually diverse grains and wheats are, but how narrow our range of thought and availability. And so I thought it would be helpful because I felt like also in a lot of what Tartine does and what you do as bakers is kind of using the old adage, you know, everything old is new again. But and you mentioned some of your newer relationships with different um, millers and, and and growers in the Pacific Northwest. So maybe Chad, do you want to start, and Jen can weigh in about give us kind of a brief primer not only on your attitude toward flour and these new relationships, but also how, as Jen was just referring to, in these different. Uh, recipes for pasta or tortillas or other pizza, you're also advocating for this kind of diversity of mixing different flour types and introducing them. Yeah. Um, that is a huge, that is a huge point. And it's, it's funny. It's like something that we, it's so ingrained in the culture of tartine that we sort of take it for granted. And, and when this book came out, which was a few weeks ago, 
you know, it's, it's almost like there has to be a, uh, a waiting period for me personally, where I start getting feedback from people. And then it reminds me what's important and what's, what's something that we haven't really put out there yet. Cause it's, it's sort of, gets a, gets a little bit blurred in my head because again we've been we've been sort of living this stuff and then I realized oh wow that's kind of a big deal we didn't we didn't you know put an emphasis on that but but from my from my very first job in the in the 90s with Richard Bourdon like I said he was you know using a lot of whole grain a lot of um, different grains I went to France on the mid 90s to work with with Richard's mentor and he was using the French version of of uh, einkorn, which is called the small spelter, petit de potre. And it's, you know, this tiny grain that's grown in high altitudes in the south of France. And and then he was also using kamut, which is, it's it's a it's a very hard, an ancient durum, a, a huge, so, you know, deep yellowish orange, very hard wheat with high protein um, that's great for you. It's sort of the precursor, the, the, the original grain that, that, um, we get all the durum that we that make pasta and everything out of now, but um, it, it's always kind of been a thing. Um, and then when we it actually when we started to scale, um, when we were opening in LA and um, in Seoul, South Korea, that we we had enough volume to start actually talking to farmers about planting specific varieties of grain for us. So. You know, growing the business a little bit gave us the the ability to work close, more closely with farmers, to not just grow grain for us. We were we were uh, getting sam- small samples of this uh, flour that was freshly milled by them, and then we'd try it out in bread, or we tried out in cookies or cakes. You know, they would they would run the um, the testing to tell us, you know, the protein levels and the falling number and and all these things that bakers kind of look at and then and then imagine what's going to happen with the you know what what it's going to be most suited for you know a gluten something that needs gluten like a certain kind of bread or something that you want lower gluten and very tender like a biscuit or a tortilla or a cake and what we found was the numbers historically aren't really what people tell you they are so you know we we sort of went eyes wide open into this territory of, of trying out new grains. You could, it's pretty easy to say whether you like the flavor or not. And then the more difficult thing is, is making a recipe of, you know, pizza, pasta, bread, pastry, and seeing where that type of flour is most suited, where it's giving you the best results. And, um, you know, that was something where Jen and I sort of took on a new role in a way as bakers, um, you know, not just buying this, you know, bag of white powder, and mixing it up according to a recipe in a book, it's, you know, we would get a mystery bag of, you know, a flour with specks in it. And, you know, it had a different aroma and a different flavor. And then, you know, the miller would tell us this is, this is what we think, or this is what we think. And then we, and then we worked it in-house at Tartine. So that's been um, one of the most rewarding and exciting and inspiring parts of, of what we do. Yeah. You know, chef might go to the farmer's market and find some produce that they're inspired by and make a dish based on whatever gorgeous punterelle they found at the market that day or whatever it is. And for us, it's like, okay, we get this grain. We have a rough idea of how it's going to work based on kind of the spec sheet that we get. And then we look at the flavor. We look at kind of the performance. Maybe we try it once or twice. It works well for something. It doesn't work well for something. And we're, we're kind of creating 
a baked good, we're creating a dish based on the characteristics of this grain. So that I think is something that, you know, is pretty unique. It's not, it's not really a feature of modern baking in general is, is creating something inspired by the grain. And it's happening more and more now, you know, but, but I think that that's a, an important angle of the book, you know, looking at, okay, so the tortillas to me is a great example. So we got this Sonora wheat, which is this really beautiful soft white wheat it's historically been used to make tortillas. We tried it for a bunch of other things, but really the tortillas made from Sonora wheat are some of the best tortillas I've ever had for sure. Um, and it has everything, all this kind of crazy, almost corn flavors to it. And this really buttery, soft, tender texture. Um, that's it's different than if you just kind of make a tortilla from the all-purpose flour, you know, grocery store, like John was saying, that kind of white powder. It's a completely different product. And these growers in the Pacific Northwest, does, does sort of terroir, like climate and soil, come into it? Is it you requesting certain grains for them, or is it more that they're planting things that they will think will grow because they're using regenerative or some other practice that requires different varieties and then they're presenting to you, hey, we planted this crop, it's doing well for us, we think you might like it. I think it's a combination for sure. Yeah. Um, the the farmers that we work with, they they all work together and they're very knowledgeable. Some some of them are, you know, their families have been farming for over a hundred years, um, which is a long time in, in the US. <laughs> And one of the reasons we're in Pacific Northwest is, is you know, California, the West Coast, a lot of the U.S. has been off and on in, in drought um, over the last several years. And Pacific Northwest, I guess they, they had some heat waves and drought and fires and everything like like a lot of parts of the U.S. Um, but they also had rain um, and they it's, it's just it's been a very um so it's a rich so soil region. All of the the Skagit Valley, where a lot of our grains grown, and and below that in parts of Oregon, you know, all that was like prehistorically, you know, ocean. So it's it's super super rich um, soil on the uh, west side of the mountain range, and um, we just love it there. So yeah, the farmers will plant stuff that they feel confident is going to grow in their and their climate with their weather systems. Um, and then they also, they work with Washington state university. There's a bread lab, there are grain breeders. So there's a lot, lot, lot of collective, um, knowledge and experience and care that goes into, to what these guys bring to us. I, we're, we're sort of, you know, the last, I'd say we do, we have an important role, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm like very, very, uh, thankful and, and humbled by all the work that goes in before, before the stuff even comes to us, because we're getting a really incredible product and I've, I've used grain and flour all over the world. And, and this stuff is, is really just incredible to work with. Uh, there's a great conversation that happens with the mill and us, like, like Chad was saying, you know, they'll find something that they think is going to work and, and they'll send it down and then you know, we'll tell them, okay, this stuff is exceptional. I love it. I want more of this, or, you know, this is kind of a mess. I don't think we'll use it again. So it's a, it's very circular and conversational, the deciding of what grains we're going to use. You know, we have Yakora Rojo is the the main bread flour that we use in the country bread. Um, and that, you know, they sent it to us. They said, we think it's going to work great. 
we said, you're right. It works great. We love it. <laughs> so we kept that one. And now that's like a you know cornerstone grain that we use. And then there's another one called Sequoia that we're really loving right now and using a lot of, and that's one that, you know, they don't have to irrigate. Um, there's no, it's like very little input. It's an incredibly responsibly grown grain and turns out it works great for us. So next year they're going to plant a lot more based on the fact that we love it and want to get more of it. So it's, it's really, I think a great conversation. Yes, I, I think it's another episode for the podcast, but I, I, I don't want to shortchange bread book. So shift gears back and did want to ask you, given all of this, is the bread book, you know, are, is it written for sort of all levels of bakers or it's really best for someone who spent a lot of time during work from home perfecting their own sourdough at home? I mean, I I think it's written for every level. I'm, it's funny that, you know, the publishers and, and editors and, and PR people, and we all talk about this stuff, like, what is this? Who is this book for? Is this like a beginner book? Or is this an advanced book? And, and I, I mean, I have, I respect everyone's opinion on that. But I kind of have my own way of thinking in, in that, you know, a lot of times people will ask us for, for sourdough starter, you know, they want like a little bit of starter. And I have no problem giving starter away. It's not like a big secret or anything. But I'm always sort of torn when someone asks me because in my mind, I'm thinking, you know, my whole goal here is to teach you how, how sort of straightforward and, and simple process and rewarding it is to make it on your own. And it takes a couple of days. So, you know, I'm helping someone out by giving them some starter, but I'm also sort of robbing them of that experience to make their own. So I'm, my point is like, I feel like if you start, if your first recipe for making bread is our really long, so complicated, quote unquote, recipe, you're going to learn from it. You know, it's just if you have the time and the and the sort of inclination to tackle that. So that helps. Yeah, and I think that there's a lot of variety in in the recipes in this book. I think there are some things that anybody could really tackle. And I think that there are some things that are a little bit more challenging. So like the tortillas are super simple, right? Exactly. Like the tortillas is just, I feel like pretty much anybody could make those tortillas. Um, things like the rustic baguettes, like that's kind of a little bit more of a wet and wild dough and maybe a little trickier to handle. Um, but even like the gluten-free bread and the vegan bread, I think those are really manageable recipes that could be really fun. The crisp breads are really easy and manageable. And the crisp breads are my favorite. And I mean, the, the only other thing I would add is like the tortilla recipe. It's, you know, it's a fresh milled, more sort of whole grainy uh, sourdough tortilla, flour tortilla. But when you make it, and as Jen and I both said, it's really, it's super easy recipe. It gives you, a, every, most people have eaten a flour tortilla in their life, but if you make this and put it on your griddle and, and cook it up, it's just, it's like, it, it's, it's life-changing. The flavor of this tortilla, it's really <laughs> incredible. And you can put butter and sugar on it and give it to your kids and they're going to love it. Or you can make, you know, breakfast burritos. I mean, there's, it's just, it's some very simple things that I think, you know, Jen and I, like, we're, we're trying to like, you know, inspire and make people smile and anyone that makes these tortillas is is having a good day for sure i think that's a really motivating message and certainly all fresh tortillas just when if you've never had a freshly made tortilla they just like blow your mind in terms of the flavor profile compared to something that's been refrigerated and made a long time ago so 
that is a really great suggestion. And I think maybe surprising that we would end up talking about tortillas so much on this episode, but that that works. We're going to take a break and we'll be back and we'll hear another double Julia moment. Get in touch, send us an email or a voice memo to contact juliachildfoundation.org or better yet, tweet us at juliachildjcf and let us know what you think about today's show. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory moment or how she's inspired them in their career. Chad, what's your Julia moment? You know, um, I, I love this. I love this question. I love it's this thought exercise. And, <laughs> you know, I, I, I met Julia once when I was in culinary school and she was lovely. And I, and I remember she was just tall and it was, you know, she was very imposing and, and very kind. Um, but my, I mean, I would say she had a huge influence in that, you know, French food in, in, in America, you know, I think she educated a lot of the non-French, you know, world about this kind of, about this food, you know, it it was something that was seen as mysterious and, you know, you know, sort of unattainable, but just incredible and kind of magic in a way like, wow, how do they make this, how do they make this stuff taste this good? You know, even in Scandinavia, like a lot of the TV chefs in in the eighties, um, you know, were making French food. It's, it was, it was what everyone was making. And, you know, but again, it was, it was sort of magic. You could go to a restaurant or you could, you'd see, you know, on these shows or whatever, but no one knew how to make this stuff. And as opposed to dumbing it down, Julia really, you know, was very, very, very detailed and, and, and thorough and extensive and educating and making, making this stuff that was formerly, you know, sort of invisible or hidden or for sure super secretive um, recipes. And, you know, we've all seen the movie Ratatouille. I mean, you know, it was very, the French kitchens were very, very secretive. And, you know, she, she started to, to educate and teach people and empower people to, to dive in and try to make some of this stuff. And, and again, when, when I started learning to make bread and, and, and I had the same experience as Jen from my first bread job, I was, I was cooking, I was studying to be a chef and I was, I was working in kitchens, but I hadn't ever tasted bread until I walked into this bakery on a, on a day off and someone had told me to go check it out. And I'd smelled the bread and I smelled the sourdough in the barn and, and I'm like, I, I need to learn how to do this. Nobody, hardly anyone knows how to do this. Like I should learn how to do this. And it took a while and I got my job, but um, I guess it's just the inspiration from Julia to really, you know, try with everything I've got to, to illuminate this stuff and educate and empower people to, to make this mysterious, magical, invisible thing at home. And um because that's what it was for us. And I'm sure that's what it was for Jen. And she, when she thought I got to learn how to make this the first time you make a good loaf of bread at home, you know, it, it and, and I hear the same, I, I hear different versions articulated from, from hundreds of people over the years. Like, wow, I never thought I could make 
that kind of bread in my house, you know? And most people don't want to do it every day or, or every week. They kind of knock it out and they're like, all right, I did that. I see how it works. I don't need to do this all the time. But it's, it's very empowering. And I, and I think uh, that, that sort of desire to, to educate and empower um, really came from, from Julia and, and another one of her contemporaries, Jacques Pepin, who was, who was pretty serious about you know, showing people step-by-step step everything to do as Julia did. And um, that's my Julia inspiration. Huge one. I love it. You couldn't see that I was smiling through that that whole uh, part. So thank you for that. All right, Jen, are, are you, do you have one that competes with chance? Yeah. I mean, when, when you sent me that prompt, the first thing that came to mind was reading My Life in France because I found that book sitting on the coffee table at a friend's house and just picked it up. And thankfully she let me take it home. Um, before I found that book, I think I knew who Julia Child was and I had an idea. Okay. She's, you know, this brilliant chef and, and brought French cooking into so many people's homes. And I had this kind of like, I want to say like one dimensional. Yeah. Yeah. I know who Julia Child is, but reading that book really, it just really came to life for me. And as somebody who's always loved to write, you know, that, that book brought so much dimension to her. And I realized, you know, there's the love story and there's the traveling and all the character kind of quirks and, and that just really rich voice. Um, I think food writing is something that a lot of people try to do and very few people do really well, but when it's done really well, it just brings all of the everything around eating and cooking to life. There's so such a rich story and it's such a part of, Jane, which I was saying a minute ago about a lot of people maybe bake this once and or a couple times or every few weeks. But I think if you if you really weave that baking into your daily life, you know, like I'm home a lot these days and I'll I'll mix bread and then I'll go for a bike ride with the kids and then I'll come back and give it a turn and then go do some gardening and you can really weave it into your everyday life. And I think reading that book for me really made me it just brought to life how much like cooking for her and I think for so many of us is just a part of this much bigger story of who we are in our lives and you know our families and our loves and I <laughs> lost my earbud there I was just exciting so much I lost my earbud <laughs> <laughs> that happens <laughs> No, I think I think that's lovely, and I and I love that you called out that um, voice and, and Julia's ability as a communicator, as a writer, that she was really talented, and I think that gets lost a little bit in some of the the other things that Julia is known for. That that was one of the reasons she was so effective. She she was a beautiful writer, and she was a very distinctive writer. She had a very distinctive style. It's very recognizable, and you see it that if if you look at her correspondence too, her correspondence is both in that style, and generally it is wildly more entertaining to read her correspondence than the average person's correspondence. So um, thank you for calling that out. I appreciate it. Sure, it's it's a good memory. And thank you both for, for joining us. I've really enjoyed the conversation, and, and uh, it's been great having you both on to talk about uh, tartine and bread and bread book. Likewise. Wonderful to, to talk, and thank you so much for having us on. Yeah, thank you so much. My absolute pleasure. And thanks, everyone, for listening. You can fire up those Dutch ovens now. 
For more from the world of Chad and Tartine, it's at Tartine Bakery and at Tartine Baker on Instagram and at Tartine Bakery SF on Facebook. You can track what's next from Jen. She's at Jennifer Latham on Instagram. Again, the cookbook is Breadbook, Ideas and Innovations from the Future of Grain, Flour, and Fermentation by Chad Robertson with Jennifer Latham, including recipe and process photography by Liz Barkley. It's out now from Lorena Jones Books, an imprint of 10-Speed Press. Keep up with the latest from us in 2022. We have an exciting year of programming events in store. It's at Julia Child on Facebook and at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram. It's at Julia Child JCF, and I'm at T. Shulkin on Twitter. The next Santa Barbara Culinary Experience is May 20th to 22nd this year. You can go to sbce.events and sign up to be among the first to hear about the lineup of exciting in-person programming. It should be up in about two weeks. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks, as always, to my co-producer at the Foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Matt Patterson. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorni. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Inside Julia's Kitchen is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.